And the article was entitled, 600 Miles in a Coffin-Shaped Bus. Uh, I'll say that again. Uh, 600 Miles in a Coffin-Shaped Bus. And needless to say, when I saw the title, uh, I had to read it. It was clickbait for me. And uh, what I read was one of the most fascinating uh, pieces that I've ever read. Um, in it was a, a reporter from the New York Times did a, a year and a half of journalism to investigate this movement called transhumanism. Transhumanism, as defined by this particular reporter, is the radical optimism about the potential for technology to transform the human condition, to improve our bodies and our minds to the point that we become something better, something more than the animals that we are. So transhumanists, here's some of what happens. Uh, one of the things that they're working on is a way to upload your brains in such a way that they can, it can be, then be downloaded into a robot and you can exist forever. I'm not kidding. I mean, I, uh, this, this isn't science fiction. This is real. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the directors of engineering at Google is one of the working on is a chip that can um, be uh, put beneath your immune system. And this super immune system would then keep uh, your body from decay and, and disease. And one of the leading proponents of it, his name is Zoltan Istvan. Uh, Zolt uh, Istvan, sorry. Zoltan Istvan. Uh, he's so committed to transhumanism uh, that he ran for president in 2016. And some of us wish that this wacko would have won. Um, but his campaign, uh, what he did on his campaign was that he, it consisted of him taking this 38-foot uh, bus, and he drove it from his home in San Francisco all the way to D.C. He called this bus the immortality bus. It was shaped like a coffin. And when he was asked about his campaign, here's what he said. I'm hoping my immortality bus will become an important symbol in the growing longevity movement around the world. It will be my way of challenging the public's apathetic stance on whether dying is good or not. By engaging people with a provocative, drivable, giant coffin, debate is sure to occur across the United States and hopefully around the world. This guy, Zoltan Istvan, when he was on this trip, he brought somebody with him. Uh, he brought this guy named Rowan Horn. Rowan was a documentarian. Rowan Horn's also uh, a transhumanist, and he's really committed uh, to these ideas, and he's really committed to Zoltan being president. And the reporter asked Rowan Horn, he said, um, why are you here? Why are you on this trip? And he said, I quote, I just really don't want to die. I can't think of anything that would suck more than death. <laughs> Now, I know that this sounds like Silicon Valley meets science fiction. I know that you're probably rolling your eyes if you're like me. But the more that I think about the article that I read, the more that I keep thinking about Rowan's comment. I keep thinking of, I can't think of anything that would suck more than being dead. I mean, isn't he right? I mean, I don't want to die. I don't want Jenna to die. I don't want my kids to die. I don't want any of you to die. I really don't want anyone to die, period. And death really is a great tragedy to the world. Isn't death what makes cancer and war and tsunamis and car wrecks and, and, and suicides so terrible? 
See, death really is more terrible than any of us can imagine. Yet we've got a really hard time dealing with it. And part of it is, is our culture. Our um, culture, we don't have to deal with death like every other culture throughout all of history has had to deal with death. I mean, I just think back on my grandparents. Um, all four of my grandparents had a sibling or a parent die before they were 18. I'm 38 years old. I'm, I'm, I'm 20 years older than they were, more than double their age at this point. And I haven't lost a sibling or a parent yet. And I may not be very close to either happening. It's not crazy to think I could get to 60 and neither happen. But for my grandparents, it happened for all four of them by the time they graduated high school. See, I fear that dreaded phone call, don't you? I'm scared to death of death. But as a Christian minister, I've got to tell you what God thinks of death. He hates it, it's not his intention. Death entered the world when sin entered the world. Death is a consequence of our rebellion. And God in his mercy does not leave us in this estate where death is our only option. He really wanted us to live forever. He doesn't want us to live forever as a robot. He wants us to live forever as people made in his image. And so we see in our text tonight this impulse, this impulse of God to eradicate both death and disease. Let's read it together. Acts 9, uh, verses 32 through 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Let me stop there just a minute. Uh, you see Peter. Peter's uh, doing the work of pastoring. Uh, he's just uh, visiting his people. He's seeing what's going on. He has no idea what's going to come at him. That's the problem with being a pastor. Uh, and he comes upon a couple things that uh, he probably wasn't expecting. Here's the first thing, verse 33. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. That's incident one. Incident two, right here in, in verse 36. Now there was in Joppa, a different city. Peter did, the, did his thing with Aeneas. Now he's jumping on to the next person. Verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all aside, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The word of the Lord. 
So what I want to show us uh, tonight is uh, miraculous power. The miraculous power that's on display in our passage. And the first point is the scope of miraculous power. And the second point is the source of miraculous power. So let's look at the scope first. Um, In both these incidences, we've got some similarities and some differences, don't we? The similarities are that Peter is the healing agent, both with Aeneas and then with Dorcas. Uh, You see that both of these, with Aeneas and with Dorcas, involve a physical healing. Both include a revival that takes place shortly after the healing. Those are all the similarities, but there's some differences. The first account, you've got a man, Aeneas. The second one, a woman, Dorcas. One incident deals with a disease. That was Aeneas' deal. He was paralyzed. And the second one deals with uh, someone being raised from the dead. That's Dorcas. And what Luke, the author of Acts, what he's doing is he's putting these two things side by side, and he's doing so on purpose. He's trying to show us that the miraculous power of God has come. And it's come to bring redemption both in the invisible realm, the realm that we can't see, as well as the physical realm, the realm that we can see. See, God's not okay with Aeneas' paralysis. God's not okay with Dorcas' death. And that's why he uses Peter to heal Aeneas and why he uses Peter to raise Dorcas from the dead. But then he's also not okay with unbelief. Look at verse 35. In verse 35, you see where it says, And all the residents of Lida and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So something happened there besides just the exchange between Peter and Aeneas. And then in verse 42, do you see what happens? After Dorcas has been raised, look what happens in verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So we've got to recognize something here, that God cares about bodies And he cares about souls. You and I, we're as people, as being made in God's image, we are embodied souls. We are souled bodies. And so when the kingdom of God breaks in, whether it's in the Gospels or whether it's here in Acts, what you see is the kingdom of God is breaking in, is doing away with disease, is doing away with death, because it cares, because the gospel cares about our physical bodies. But when the kingdom of God breaks in, it also breaks in with how we believe that we want to be, that we need to be restored to God through belief in Jesus. Now, I know in this passage, in both accounts, it looks like Peter's doing these miracles so that people would come to faith. Now, I would say that's true, but it's not because evangelism is more important than the healing of the body. Think about another incident. This is in Mark 2. You also have a a paralyzed man there in Mark 2. Jesus comes upon him because he's been lowered throughout the... Jesus is staying preaching in this house. There's not room in the house to get this uh, paralyzed... for for the paralyzed man and his friends to get him there in front of Jesus. So what they do is they climb up on the roof, they dig a big hole in the roof, and they lower the man right in front of Jesus. You've got to think everybody out there watching, well, what in the world is going on here? <laughs> These guys just put a, a roof in this brother's house. And he's laying there in front of Jesus. And you expect Jesus to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But Jesus doesn't say that. You know what Jesus says if you've been around the Bible. Jesus says, brother, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, if I were one of those four guys on the roof, or certainly if I was that paralyzed guy, I'd be saying, uh, great. I'd love to have my sins forgiven. Uh, not really why I'm here, though, bro. And right after that, Jesus does say a second thing to him. He says, get up, take your mat, and walk. So there, forgiveness of sin happens, and then the healing of his body happens. And I think when, when you put the scriptures together, what you're going to do is you're going to find, you're going to come to this conclusion. You're going to come to the conclusion that these two kinds of ministries, ministry to the body and ministry to the soul, that they feed off one another. Parasitic relationship. They exist in a symbiotic. Each fuels the other. Each gives the other energy. And so it's application for us. Is it means that evangelism and mercy ministry are equally important. One's not more important than the other. And it's got massive implications for how we prioritize ministry here at our church. Now, we come from a tradition uh, that values evangelism. We come from a tradition that values ministries of the word. Start a Bible study, people will come. Have an opportunity for preaching, people will come. Put up a missionary or evangelist, people are glad to give their funds to it. Now, none of these people, no, no one in our tradition would necessarily say that ministry to the poor is unimportant or that it's less important than evangelism, but it's the truth. It's reflected in how we spend our time. It's reflected in our budget. It's reflected in what we pray for. So there needs to be a shift that happens for us. Our engagement with the physical effects of the fall needs to equal our engagement with the invisible effects of the fall. Now, I realize that's a rebuke. That's a rebuke for all of us. But I think there's also an encouragement when we step back and take a look at what's going on here with Peter and Aeneas and Dorcas. The encouragement for many of us is that our bodies really do matter. And because our bodies matter, because our bodies have been affected by the fall, because our bodies are part of what Jesus wants to redeem, it means that everyone, not just missionaries, not just those involved in vocational ministry, not just those of us who do evangelism and teach the Bible for a living, it's not just us who are participating in the work of redemption. All of us get to. Because some of us work with bodies for a living, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're in the medical profession. A couple weeks ago, uh, I was uh, having, a, having lunch with an old friend, and my old friend has uh, been in ministry for over 20 years. It's the only thing he had ever done. And he was transitioning out of ministry into a new career in business. And I was real curious just to spend time with him because I just missed him, but I was real curious to ask him, man, how's this transition going? I mean, big, big shift for you. And what he said, he said, man, it's really hard to believe that what I do now in business means as much as what I used to do in ministry. But think about being back here with Peter here in Acts 9. Think about going up to Peter after these events and saying, uh, yo, Peter, uh, sure was cool how all those people came to faith. All those people in Joppa and all those people in Lydda and Sharon... I mean, how revival broke out there was unbelievable. I think he'd look you square in the eye and he'd say, what about Aeneas? What about Dorcas? I think he'd also say, well, I guess I don't need to come to your house when you're sick. 
when you got a loved one, I guess we don't have to care about them because I'm going to be so busy doing evangelism. I'm going to be so busy teaching the word that I'm not going to have time for your body or for your family member's body. I think sometimes uh, we say, oh gosh, I just hate sitting in a prayer group where everybody just sits around and talks about, man, will you pray for my aunt, aunt, aunt Sue? Aunt Sue's having a hip replacement. And you, we, you know, because we're young, we roll our eyes and be like, are you kidding me? Like, tell me something real. Aunt Sue's hip replacement is real. Jesus isn't okay with broken down hips. One day you will get a new body and your hips will work forever. That's the good news of the Christian faith. So if you're a Christian with a job, then you're in the business of redemption, not just those of us who teach the word and do evangelism for a career. If you're waiting tables, you're providing food for bodies. If you're caring for children, you're taking care of little bodies. If you're designing buildings that are safe and beautiful, you're taking care of bodies. And especially if you're caring for patients in a medical setting, you're taking care of bodies. You're in the work of redemption. You don't just have your job so that you can pay for your life and give a little something to the church. You have your job because you're in the work of redemption. The scope of Jesus' miraculous power goes far beyond evangelism. The scope even reaches to our physical bodies. That's the scope of Jesus' miraculous power. But even more importantly, we see the source of Jesus' miraculous power in this text. Peter comes on the scene and he has this pretty intense confrontation. Now you're saying, well, I don't see any confrontation. Nobody's really arguing with Peter here. Oh, but he's having one. You see it. He's having a confrontation with disease. Then he has a confrontation with death. And in verse 34, you see it with Aeneas. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. <laughs> Notice who he attributes the power to. Jesus Christ heals you. You'd kind of expect him to say, I heal you in the name of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't. Jesus Christ heals you, verse 34. Then now look at verse 40. Verse 40 with Dorcas, he kneels down and prays. So you've got both these miracles, one with disease, one with death, and they're performed by the power of Jesus. If Peter just looked at the body with disease or just looked at the body with death, Aeneas and Dorcas, and he said, by my own authority as an apostle, I declare that you should be, that you should walk or that you should raise from the dead. It wouldn't have worked. That's why I didn't try it. Nothing would have happened. If you've ever tried to talk to a corpse, nothing happens. But things do happen when Jesus Christ heals people. So because of Jesus, Peter and you and me, we've got this live wire. Have you ever been around a live wire? I've lived in a bunch of old houses that have needed work. I've had a lot of live wires. But we have this live wire, this live wire of resurrection. Acts 1.1, way back in August, preached at the beginning of Acts. And Luke has this two-volume 
Uh, it's two-volume corpus in the scriptures. The first volume in his corpus is Luke, his gospel. The second volume in his corpus is Acts. In Acts 1.1, he's writing uh, to his friend named Theophilus, and he says, I, I, the things I wrote to you of what Jesus began to do. And what he's referring to is his gospel, things that Jesus began to do. But if you see, if you read through Acts, I mean, Jesus ascends into heaven in verse 8. There's 27 and a half chapters left in Acts. And that records all the things that Jesus continued to do. There's this live wire ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. And we see this live, this live wire in display in these two accounts. And these two accounts sound familiar to you, don't they? Well, in Luke 5, if you went to the first volume, you'd find that Jesus healed a paralyzed man, much like Aeneas. Fast forward a couple chapters, get to Luke 8, you would find that Jesus raises a woman from the dead, much like Dorcas. It's intentional because what Luke's trying to say is the same power that was at work in Luke 5 and 8 is the same power that's at work in Luke 9. It's the same power that's alive today. There's a live wire, friends. But there's one difference between Luke 5 and 8 and Acts 9, and it's a verb. When Jesus tells the paralyzed man, Luke 5, or when Jesus tells the woman who's dead in, in, in Luke 8 to get up, he uses the verb that just means get up, like get out of bed. But Peter in Luke 9, or in Acts 9, uses a different word. Peter uses the word arise. Peter uses the word resurrect. It's the same verb that Luke uses to talk about Jesus raising from the dead. That means that both of the incidents here in Acts 9 are visible signs that a new life exists in the world because of Jesus Christ. I know that's an inspiring reminder for many of us, isn't it? That there's this live wire, that redemption is at work, that we don't have to wait till heaven to begin to see resurrection pop up in places in our own hearts and in our bodies and in our communities. But for others of us, we are sent back into our pain and we begin to ask really tough questions like, why didn't God heal my mother of cancer? And I prayed for that. Why hasn't God taken away my addiction? Why hasn't God taken away my depression? I've prayed hundreds of times for it. I've been praying that God would give me a job and I'm months into this journey and I can't find one. What's God have to say about that? Well, I can tell you, friends, is I'm sorry. There aren't any cookie cutter answers that I can give you to answer those kinds of questions. There's no answer that I can give. There's no answer anybody else could give that would even come close to satisfying your curiosity. But I can say a couple things. The first thing I can say is that if you've had a Dorcas or you've had a Aeneas in your own soul or, 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 or close by, is that Jesus knows what it's like. I recently had some dental work done. I've been telling the whole world about it. Um, I've, I've, had, I've had my first surgery. I got my second surgery tomorrow. Got my third one, uh, middle of May. 
Uh, I've had some dental work done because I've been brushing my teeth too, too hard for a long, long time. I've lost a bunch of gum tissue. They've got to sew some in there. It's really nasty. And um, the type of dentist who does this work is called a periodontist. I'd never heard of a periodontist before. Well, part of the reason is there are not many of them. I mean, the state of Kentucky is only putting out four a year. And um, my periodontist uh, is a younger guy. And I asked him, I said, hey, man, have you ever had this procedure done? And he said, I haven't. Now, this guy knows his stuff. He, he, he's been in school forever. Um, he seems to be super focused. He seems to be really smart. Um, he knows more about gum tissue than I know about the whole rest of the world. Um, but here's what he doesn't know. He doesn't know from experience what this surgery is like. What he doesn't know from experience is what recovery from this surgery is like. Well, friends, Jesus is not like my periodontist when it comes to death and suffering. Um, Jesus, uh, he was scared of death too. Uh, Jesus asked the Father if he could bypass death, and he was denied. Jesus lost his dear cousin, John the Baptist. And Jesus, yeah, he, he could have secured his own rescue. From the cross, he could have made sure that John the Baptist didn't die, but he didn't do it. So that means that Jesus had to sit in disappointment. Jesus had to sit in confusion. So that when you sit in disappointment and you sit in confusion, he knows it's exactly what it's like. And he knows not because of a textbook kind of knowledge. He knows from firsthand experience. The second thing I can tell you is that you're not going to experience death forever. There's coming a day where your addiction will be no more. There's coming a day where the broken relationship that you've been praying that would be repaired will be reconciled. There's coming a day when your depression will be no more. There's coming a day when your body's going to work like it's supposed to. There's coming a day when you won't have to fear the return of cancer to your body. There's coming a day where you're going to hear the exact same words as Aeneas. You're going to hear the words, Jared, Jesus Christ heals you. Denise, Jesus Christ heals you. Samantha, Jesus Christ heals you. You're going to hear the words, Betty, resurrect. Ruth, resurrect. John, Resurrect. Death and disease are not going to have the last word, friends. Jesus is on the throne. And if his live wire doesn't get you in this life, it's going to get you the next. And he's going to bring you full redemption. The author of um, the guy, the journalist who did this piece about a 600-mile train ride on a bus of a coffin. Um, he, he, when he's writing about his ride, about the immortality bus, he makes a really interesting comment. He said that for Zoltan, Zoltan was raised in the church, go figure. And that Zoltan, uh, that his uh, faith in God had been displaced with a faith in scientific progress. As far as I know, this journalist, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. And he said that for all the transhumans he talks to, especially for Zoltan, that they have what he calls a delirious hope 
a delirious hope that technology will bring about eternal life for mankind. Well, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you do not have a delirious hope that death will be vanquished. You have a sure hope. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and you will too. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've sent your spirit into the world. Though we can't see you with our eyeballs, you are alive and well. Would you touch us now? In Christ's name, amen.